Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch Out Monday, the 26th of April, 2021. Happy to be starting off the week here with you. And we've got plenty for you here on the show. As we always do, we're going to be talking about how a lobbyist with Biden ties are getting paid. Surprise, surprise. We're going to be talking about Somalia, unfortunately, continuing uh, to, to deteriorate the situation there that is in Somalia. Going to update you on that. But before we get to either of those two critically important stories, we're going to start with the ongoing COVID carnage in India. <laughs> Well, India has set the record for the rise in new coronavirus cases per day, every day, for the last five days. So the pandemic is just wreaking havoc across the country there, and the healthcare system essentially just collapses under the weight of the surge in patients. The U.S. government spent the weekend backpedaling after they had refused at the end of last week to lift an export ban on raw materials for vaccines that was hurting India's production of said vaccines. As photos emerged of bodies being burned in makeshift crematoriums and pleas from India and around the world, the U.S. has now announced it will be rushing raw materials and other aid to India. The crisis captured the attention of the world as hospitals are running out of beds and oxygen, and the prices of antiviral drugs are skyrocketing, and a black market is emerging in some of those. Anguished messages using the hashtag SOS have been spreading around the world on social media as institutions and individuals look for help anywhere they can get it. Exactly what's driving this spike in infections is debated. New variants of COVID-19 that spread more quickly have been a culprit that is frequently pointed to. However, it's notable how carelessly the central government of India, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his BJP party, has managed social interactions, new variants or not. The government took essentially no precautions, for instance, recently surrounding a massive Hindu festival that saw millions of people travel across the country and back on pilgrimage. And even worse than that, the BJP seemed reluctant to enforce COVID-controlling measures because they were aggressively using the event to campaign for regional elections happening across the country. Further, in West Bengal in particular, the BJP was the last party to suspend massive campaign rallies happening for regional elections there, even when it was clear that the COVID wave was turning into a tsunami. And on top of all of that, the Modi government spent the past few days demanding social media companies take down posts critical of their handling of the pandemic, with some BJP officials even calling for people to be prosecuted under harsh national security laws. The crisis has more or less mirrored the broader approach of the Modi government during the pandemic. No centralized or consistent measures taken to lessen the pandemic uh, at all. And one major problem is clear. 
is that the current crisis has not only a lack of real centralized coordination of various resources, some of which are scarce, but that there's a lack of real public health infrastructure to work through, which speaks to the overall underfunding that this government has done of the healthcare sector. In 2018, for instance, India's healthcare spending per capita was the same as Sierra Leone, Myanmar, and the island nation of Kiribati. India has fewer than one doctor for every 1,000 people and only 5.3 hospital beds per 1,000 people. China, by comparison, has 43 hospital beds per 1,000 people. The entire country of India has fewer ventilators than Wuhan alone. Notably, the Times of India has detailed that the communist-run state of Kerala has avoided the types of widespread catastrophes due to their well-established system of public health and structures like significantly expanded telehealth that were set up early in the pandemic as part of a massive campaign involving hundreds of thousands of people in prevention measures. So you can certainly imagine what could have happened had the whole country adopted a similar approach as this one state that, again, is run by communists who are putting people over profit. And hard-hit West Bengal activists with the Democratic Youth Federation of India, it's an organization of young communists, by the way, have set up something called, quote-unquote, red volunteer groups that are developing grassroots networks to coordinate easier access to oxygen and vaccines, as well as educating the public about what exactly is going on, where and when they can receive help, and what is safe and what is not in terms of moving around on a daily basis. The BJP, by contrast is cynically campaigning on West Bengal and offering everyone a free vaccine, which they likely can't deliver, but only after, of course, the BJP is elected. So more or less saying, you want to make it, you want to survive, put us in office. Cynical. Criminal. Disgusting enough on its own. But it's brought into even further relief by what we were talking about at the beginning of this, the original American unwillingness to really assist India at all, at least until there was an embarrassing outcry around the world. India under Modi, has enthusiastically clung to the U.S. foreign policy of attempting to alienate and isolate China, avoiding all significant cooperation with their neighbor, who had effectively dealt with the pandemic. But in India's hour of need, China offered help before the U.S. did. It's certainly an important statement that the U.S. was unwilling to meet essentially minor requests in terms of the effect on the United States from its so-called ally, but just another example of how the Modi government governs not in the interests of its people, but with a narrow elite agenda that is best served by clinging to this unequal alliance with U.S. imperialism. But we're seeing now who benefits and who pays by signing on to this new Cold War-style policy being pushed out of Washington. Sadly, the crisis seems set to continue as the government scrambles to do something. If nothing else, this heavily reinforces the need for massively accelerated global cooperation on fighting the pandemic, starting, by the way, with the World Trade Organization granting one very good proposal from India and from South Africa, and that's to lift intellectual property rights on vaccine production. The U.S., the U.K., and the E.U. who are opposing this move can act next week to lift those restrictions. For the sake of India, for the sake of all of us, they sure need to. We told you recently that the ongoing political crisis in Somalia threatened a deepening armed conflict in that country, which sadly appears to be what may have started happening this weekend. On Sunday, forces under the command of opposition factions exchanged gunfire with supporters of Somalia's president. And on Monday morning, opposition fighters begin to take up armed positions in various areas of the capital, Mogadishu, where they hold influence. 
And this is the latest move in a multi-week political crisis that started, again, just a couple of weeks ago, when Somalia's president, who's known colloquially as Farmajo, maneuvered parliament to extend his presidential term for two years. And this resulted in the collapse of talks between the president and influential leaders of the opposition about how to conduct the next elections. As this weekend's actions are signaling, failure to agree will almost certainly result in more conflict between factions formally backing the government on top of tensions between those conflicting forces and al-Shabaab, a so-called, quote-unquote, Islamist insurgency. Stepping back a bit here to understand how this all fits in. The roots of this crisis are really the collapse of the central government of Somalia way back in 1991. From 91 to 2005, there was no functioning central government. And really the basic political units uh, that emerged were the generations-old clan structures that were deeply rooted in Somali society and continue to be uh, historically and culturally, and various coalitions of warlords. Uh, most of those warlords, by the way, at one point at least, some of them were backed by the United States and the CIA. But nevertheless, in 2005, something called the Islamic Courts Union was able to establish broad unity in the country for the first time again from ninth, since 1991, bringing together various accepted courts using Islam as the basis of their jurisprudence that were linked to influential subclans. The U.S. and Ethiopia, however, couldn't accept the courts for a few reasons, uh, more than we can cover here, but a couple. First, the courts created a broad unity, which meant some of its members subscribed to schools of Islam that the U.S. viewed as too adversarial to have involved in a government that sits at such a geostrategically important location at the center of world commerce. Ethiopia alleged that Eritrea was an ally of the courts, and since the Ethiopian government at that time was bitterly opposed to Eritrea, they felt it was a, a threat to them, for sure. So the U.S. and Ethiopia colluded to overthrow the Islamic Courts Union. The Ethiopian government invaded. The U.S. was backing it. They installed a government, the so-called transitional federal government, that has evolved into what exists now. Uh, the, the, the 2017 is when Farmajo came in. And anyway, they brought it together by co-opting some elements of the courts, the Islamic courts, and throwing a few other people they'd work with uh, into the mix and trying to establish, you know, some sort of, of power structure that could look legitimate and, you know, quote unquote democratic, although that has been more or less proven to be absurd, despite the various pretensions to the contrary. But more than looking completely ridiculous and hypocritical and not some great uh, institution for democracy, the bigger issue is that it's utterly failed to do anything other than plunge the country even deeper into poverty and violence. And again, after there hadn't been a centralized government since 91 and the country had been racked by civil war, dozens of countries around the world have now been drawn in and you know, various quote-unquote peacekeeping, quote-unquote counterterrorism, really just naked, nakedly colonial and neo-colonial type missions, uh, all in this massive conflict that shows no signs of abating, all because the United States and its ally in Ethiopia didn't like the Islamic Courts Union and didn't care enough about the Somali people doing anything other than launch the country into a civil war. And that's basically where we are now. All the contradictions of this regime change operation that began in 2006 are coming home to roost. Farmajo has been pushing to consolidate his own power. The other power brokers disagree with him. Now they're falling out. The U.S. and others are in overdrive to try to save this lash-up of interest, not because it helps anyone, but because they don't want its collapse to expose with finality the fact that it was 
ever anything other than what it really was, this neo-colonial lash-up, not some experiment in democracy, which is how they sold this regime change operation. And, and because of all those factors, there's still a few ways this can play out. Hopefully, widespread conflict can be uh, uh, averted here, and we'll keep reporting on it. But without a doubt, it seems that this portends just more suffering and more violence for the people of Somalia, just even more victims of the change of regime change operations launched and sponsored by the United States in the post-9-11 era. (laughs) President Joe Biden, when he was a candidate, told a gathering of rich donors that they need not worry because under his presidency for them, nothing would fundamentally change. Seems like he wasn't really lying either when one looks at some new research from the Center for Responsive Politics that shows at least one Biden-linked lobbying firm saw their revenue quintuple in the first quarter of this year. Corporate influence machine just rolling on. Jeff Reschetti, who's a lobbyist and conveniently the brother of one of Joe Biden's top advisors in the White House, had, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, raked in... $820,000 in lobbying revenue from January through March. And what were some of these people giving them money for? Well, TC Energy, that's the company behind the Keystone XL pipeline, used Reschetti to make a last-ditch effort to save the project. They hired him five days before Biden ruled to halt the project, so their last-ditch effort didn't work. But they clearly built in some cushion for failure there because they paid him $90,000 through March in order to keep working on, quote, the safe and efficient transportation of natural gas and liquid energy, end quote. Vaxart, that's a company that's developing a tablet-based uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Well, they paid Rochetti 80 grand to reach out to the government about how to get free money to underwrite their research and development and also various regulatory issues. While Rochetti says that he doesn't lobby his brother, who, again, is the counselor to the president, The Vaxart lobbying disclosure explicitly states that he did lobby someone in the quote-unquote executive office of the president. Not saying it's his brother, just saying he works there. On February 1st, General Motors hired Rochetti to lobby the Department of Commerce and the Senate on, quote, tax incentives for electric vehicles and charging stations, end quote. That was actually among a few other things, by the way. Now, none of this, of course, is surprising. It's the way the game works. But it's exactly what Biden meant when he said nothing will fundamentally change. And that's not that someone like Rashetti is going to get everything done that his clients want, but that the basic system of influence isn't going to stop. And that Biden, like everyone else, is going to have people in key positions who are tied to the broader capitalist influence peddling operation overall. Ultimately, it's just a message to the corporations, to the ultra-rich in America that, yes, He is perhaps disguising some of his rhetoric, but at the end of the day, whatever changes happen, they will have a huge inside and outsized voice in terms of what actual policy goes on the paper. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. 
And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.